Proudly coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee, this is the Frontier Podcast. I'm your host, Ledge, and we are powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on iTunes and join the conversation at the Frontier Pod on Twitter. Giddy up! In its purest form, the microservices architectural pattern tells us to dream small while designing services, which is all well and good, but how small is still useful? Pragmatic microservice design helps us draw some useful boundaries and keeps our eyes on shipping product. In this episode, we talk to Director of Engineering, Daniel Knight, about breaking down business problems into known objectives in the business and the technical domain and taking the focus off trying to solve problems we don't yet understand. In that way, product teams get to focus on the what, while engineering teams can focus on the how. It's all about balance. Daniel, good to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Sledge. I'm happy to be here. So would you mind giving like a two, three minute intro of yourself and your work, you know, just so the audience can get to know you? Sure. Um, well, uh, I work for a company called Red Ventures. I work in the Austin office. My job is, uh, to be the director of engineering for our Austin platform team that we call the Cards Platform Team. Uh, we call it the Cards Platform Team because uh, our team manages all the financial products for the Cards division of Red Ventures, which I don't know if you're familiar with Red Ventures, but we have a ton of divisions, uh, Cards being one of the more uh, significant pieces. Um, my day-to-day really is about mentoring and coaching developers, doing architecture reviews, doing code reviews, as well as uh, giving developers and engineers opportunities to grow and uh, work with uh, you know, architecture that they might normally not work with. We've decided on a few kind of core principles, one of which being standards compliant architecture. We can get into more detail about that if you would like. Um, we also have adopted microservice architecture, and we've kind of taken a pragmatic approach to that. And uh, we think we're really onto something great there. Yeah, please walk through those those steps. You know, that, yeah. that'd be really interesting to hear about, um, you know, each, each of those areas, because I, I know that your career has evolved from, you know, software engineer to architect to, to leadership, you know, and so you probably have a lot of interesting opinions and experiences around, you know, each of those to get to that pragmatic approach. And I, I think that's a, a great place to go. Yeah. So microservice architecture, if you read a lot on it, I think that your imagination can run pretty wild with it. A lot of people do what I like to call dream small, which is dream as small as you possibly can. I do that too, but I also am faced with the reality that I have to deliver product at the, at the end of the day. So how small can I dream? And one of the things that the team does is we really take a pragmatic approach to microservice architecture in that we try to solve the problems that we know we have. We don't try to solve the problems we don't know. Um, Some of those problems, and uh, some of your listeners may disagree, but some of those problems are, is that we don't know what scale we need. So do we, out of the gate, try to optimize for 20,000 TPS? I would say that in our approach, being more pragmatic, that we wouldn't try to shoot for that 20,000. TPS. Um, what we would do is try to solve the problem and then see where scale, what, and then see what type of scale we need. Uh, we also uh, approach the problem domain a little uniquely in that uh, we really look at what we know about the problem domain before we make any decisions on the architecture. Every developer needs to understand and how to be able to talk and uh, really problem solve within the problem domain. Uh, then we kind of look at responsibilities within there. You know, what, what's some key functionality inside that problem domain? If we can identify some key functionality and we can 
get creative and try to make it self-contained. If we can make it, um, you know, a decoupled, then we'll do that. That becomes a microservice for us. Give an example, when we were asked to do, to, to basically take a monolith application that was responsible for uh, a pretty massive ETL project, ETL being extract, translate, and load. We really looked at it and said, well, what are the air, what are the responsibilities within that problem set that we have to really get right? We decided to take on the, the extraction side and make that its own microservice since we had to do a lot of different interfaces without external partners. We needed to be able to translate those files as well into a common data format. And then we had to load them into our system. So that, those seemed like very natural breakpoints um, for our microservice architecture. And again, we're trying to be pragmatic. So we're trying to solve the problems we know in that we know that we have to pull the data, we know we have to translate it, and we know we have to put and store it in our database. Now, that's a very like, that's yeah. a horizontal domain approach, right? So you're looking at the domain there, you know, from the, the functional perspective of the technology. Do you ever have to deal with, you know, domain driven design from, um, from the disciplinary side? You know, so like, for example, like, you know, financial services and consumer data. We have some really great product managers that, that own that part for us. We really rely on them to be thought partners with us. And that as we solve the technology problems, we rely on them to really translate those business needs to us. Uh, eventually, all the developers on this particular project have become domain experts. Um, they didn't start out that way. But, you know, we try to boil the problem down to really to some really concrete solutions in that we in that we don't expect them to be domain experts to begin with, nor do we have really the time where we really expecting that expertise to be is with the product management. That's and, fantastic. Um, and so that you have a trusted product function that can do that for you, you know, it's huge. And a lot of organizations really wish they have that. So you have a tight relationship there between the functions. That's another topic that's come up a lot, you know, as I talk to engineering leaders, like, you know, what's the, that blurry line now between product and engineering and, and, you know, how those things are kind of converging and yet they are different disciplines and you have different ways to think about you know, organizing that organization too. Yeah, my, the best advice I can, I, I can probably give anybody is become friends with your product manager or your product owner, whatever you call them. Learn to brainstorm with them. Now, I am very fortunate to work with some very talented, very awesome product managers and they, ha they come from an engineering background, well, at least most of them do. The one thing that I have in common with all of them is we all play our roles. Their job is to ensure that, that we're building the right things and that they're gonna be valuable. In order to know whether or not something's gonna deliver value, we have to trust them. Uh, we have to trust that they've done their research, they've talked to, our, they've talked to customers, they've talked to stakeholders. Uh, that really does free up engineering to really, um, to really focus on the technical excellence of what we're delivering. Uh, and like I said, you cannot be successful as an engineer if you don't understand the, the problem domain or, or what it is that we're doing, but that will come on time if you have a solid product organization. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you have like a strong delineation between the what and the how. Right. And they're going to trust you to say, like, we're not going to dictate to you what the, the technical specifications are. We're just going to tell you exactly what we want from a business and objective, you know, results perspective. Yeah, I, I love that. Yeah, and it's a conversation. You know, I expect to hear them having arguments. I expect to hear them talking over each other. Uh, and because in the end, it shows that they're both passionate and they're both doing their job. Like I said, the product org is going to come to us. I, I really liked how you put that. They're going to come to us with the what, and we're going to come up with the how. And like I said, eventually, uh, the developers will be 
domain experts, but I don't expect that off the bat. I took you off on the product path okay. there. I'm curious, uh, yeah, where were you? Where were you going on the, you know, the engineering path to steer um, back on there? As we were breaking down that problem, I mean, and it was a big problem, and I could go into a little more specifics about all the nuances of it. Uh, you know, just from a um, high-level architectural perspective, we needed. We decided that we were going to go ahead and start with those three microservices. One mark service to fetch data, another to, to translate the data, another to load the data into our database. And then, uh, and then as we got in there, we realized that we, were, that we had hotspots in our architecture. We had things that we were doing a lot and we had things that we were doing not as much as we thought we would. So we decided that um, it would be good to break those things out further. And uh, at that point, we, decided, we also saw the need for messaging. We like messaging a lot because it lets us do uh, deferred work. And it lets us kind of get some durability within our architecture. So, so at this point, and at some point, you're going to decide once you solve the problems you know you have, new problems are going to come up. And this is where pragmatic microservice architecture comes from, really, is you're going to solve some problems and new problems are going to come up. You're going to have hot spots in your architecture. You're going to be doing some things more than you didn't think you were going to be doing them. And you're going to be doing things less than you expected. So it's really about how you can then break down the microservices down even smaller and get better scale that way. Yeah, I get um, it. You're, you're not trying to predict the future of what the requirements are going to be. You, you don't know. So you're trying to create yourself a, a reasonably well delineated and abstracted version of the future and then see what actually happens based on that. So it's, it's much more experimental and lean. And I, I want to say I want to kind of go back to something I said very uh, I said very early on, which was um, at the end of the day we have to ship product. By doing this approach, we get something good. It may not be perfect yet, but we get something good. We get it out there. We we're now in a position to learn, kind of like what you were talking about. We're in a position to learn, and some of those learnings is what I reference, which is you know you're going to have some you're going to have areas where you could break out functionality. You can break out, let's take the, the ETL example again, and you look at the, the extract method, right? Uh, we currently extract data from five or six different types of sources, whether that be email, FTP, um, API call, um, and so on. Uh, we have inbound and we have to go outbound. So what we found is that there were some of those protocols that we were doing more often. So it made sense to break them out into their own services. And with messaging tying everything together, it gave us the ability to, uh, to really scale that because we were able to subscribe and use different AMQP you know, exchange types to really accomplish that. In the end, we're pretty stable now and we're pretty happy with it. And I will say that the, you know, if somebody's coming in and they're a microservice uh, expert, they're probably going to look at one of our services and go, this is too big. And I understand that. From our point of view, it's as big as it needs to be in order for us to have shipped value. And that was, in the end of the day, that was important to us. Um, but we did it with excellence as well. Uh, our code's maintainable. We, like, and with messaging, we get durability in, in with, between the services um, that we normally wouldn't have if we were just going directly between the services. Talk to me about just, I'm curious, the, the specifics, if you can, of the, the stack. You know, what, how, are you, uh, yeah. how are you utilizing the cloud or... Um, you know, each of the stack components and your different tool sets and messaging, you know, just for the listeners like to know, you know, what's the best practice of yeah. solving a big ETL problem is not an uncommon, you know, disposition right now for, you know, tons of different industries. So what's the tech stack look like? First of all, I don't, I don't know if, if I'm the best person to tell anybody what the best practices are. Um, 
I will say that my stuff works, but we'll leave it, we'll leave it to history to determine whether or not it's the best practice. For us, we primarily run a Java shop. And it's not that we're all Java developers, it's just that for us, that was, that was the, the language that got us the most value, value very, very early on. And it was easy to find developers and it was very easy to find talented developers. But primarily we run Java Spring Boot uh, for all of our APIs. We run all of those in Docker containers on an ECS cluster in AWS. One of the reasons why we love Docker so much is that it, gets a, it shortens our feedback loop, which is very important to us. We can iterate much faster using Docker because of the way that we're able to package that stuff up and get it deployed across ECS very quickly. Um, we use New Relic and Datadog for different, different reasons, um, but New Relic gets us tons of telemetry data, tells us how our applications are performing. We have New Relic deployed across all our applications and across all of our infrastructure in AWS. So we get tons of data and it's only and it's there for the taking. So we can see where we've got where we got hotspots and where we probably could afford to go and take a second look. How do you handle CI C D? So this is one of those areas where the tool needed to we didn't we didn't want to get wrapped up in the tool. So uh, we are huge fans of Travis CI because of how easy it is to use. I know some people out there are Jenkins for life. I understand that. But at the end of the day, from a leadership perspective, I want something someone can plug into and be successful very quickly. Um, for, in my experience, that wasn't Jenkins. Travis CI fits, uh, fits the bill. It also allows us to deploy directly to our Artifactory instance, which is our way of making our, our Docker images and our applications uh, portable and reusable across all different types of environments, whether that be local environment, staging environment, or, you know, or production environment. So the final question I ask all the technology leaders that, that we talk to, we're in the business of finding and vetting and, and you know, putting out there just like the very most senior freelance engineers. There's just like excellent senior, you know, A plus unicorn, you know, use your, your favorite uh, metaphor. And, you know, we have a pretty strong heuristic for doing that and kind of a system that we've developed over the years, but, you know, we feel that we can always learn more, you know, so my, my question to the guests almost on every episode is, you know, what are your heuristics to, to know and hire the A plus players from the market, you know, when you're assessing them to add to your team? It's, it's, it's very hard. I, I try to look beyond their qualifications. I'm really looking one for culture. Like that's the number one thing that uh, I look for as well as most of the people at my company look for. We put a lot of focus on that. A long time ago, I, I learned that, and I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of people have heard this. Um, I don't know how many people this would be new to. I learned a long time that you can teach skills, but you, you can't teach culture. So we try to look for culture. What type of things are we looking for in culture? I think might be your next question. Uh, we're looking for people who are passionate or who are willing to learn and who are willing to learn from anybody. I learn every day from junior engineers. I learn every day from my, you know, from the CTO of my company. You know, just because you're at a certain place in your career doesn't mean that, that you're immune from learning. So learning is, is very important. In, in fact, at Red Ventures, we have an entire department that's run extremely professionally and extremely well. That is all about running seminar and classes, classes and getting external speakers, and it's called a learning and development department. Uh, if you're a Red Ventures employee, uh, you have a world-class educational system in the company available to you, which I think is fantastic. 
So learning is a huge part of what we look for. You know, people willing to learn, people willing to teach and make the people around them better. And then we're just looking for creativity in that, you know, can they think outside the box when it comes to a solution? You know, kind of going back to my example, I don't know. I know that doing pragmatic architecture and doing pragmatic microservice architecture sometimes can make people feel like they're doing it wrong. And I understand that too. But, you know, we really want people to get to a point where they can think creatively in that way and say, you know what, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about delivering value. How can we create it? How can we get to position to learn? And how can we get to production faster? Even if it means that we have to do things creatively and do so without sacrificing technical excellence and without sacrificing, you know, the future of our applications, because, you know, that's very easy to just to produce a prototype and get it to production. And some people might think that's value. I would say that that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking more about doing, you know, working fast, working pragmatically, but, but, but also doing so, doing so with a sense of excellence and a sense of professionalism. Daniel, thanks for the insights. Appreciate the opportunity to have you on and good luck with the continued pragmatism. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.